Hello listeners, this is Alexa Stop episode 20, the podcast about how technology is changing our lives. And we're out here standing above the Brompton factory, looking out as people weld and bring together amazing machines, there's raspberry pies at every station. It looks like a technology-centred organisation making an amazing piece of British engineering. Absolutely. If you're not familiar with Brompton, it's absolutely magical British brand who make these incredible folding bicycles, the world leader in this space, and we are lucky enough to be at their factory today in London to meet the charismatic CEO, Will Butler-Adams, to talk to him about his amazing journey building the business. And so that's coming up. We've also got news about general transport stuff, things that are happening with Minecraft, jump bikes reaching London, plenty of stuff to talk about. Also, you can listen to the podcast on various channels. We're available on SoundCloud. We are. We're available on Spotify. We're available on Anchor. We're available on Apple Podcasts, all the places you know and love. And our partners in this crime of a podcast, if it it, maybe it's not a crime, is it a crime of a podcast? No, it's a delight. It's this delight of a podcast. Our friends over at Disruption Magazine, you can catch up with them at disruptionhub.com. Thanks. Big thanks to them. Uh, Thanks as always to Mark for production support. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, please do hit us up on Twitter, Alexa underscore stop, at Robert Belgrave or at Jim Bose. And there's a new feature on Anchor that we might be trialling soon to help use a postbag feature. Yeah, if you'd like to phone in a, a question or anything like that, if you use the Anchor app on your iPhone or Android phone, you can literally record a question for us and we'll splice it into a future show. This is Alexa Stop. Alexa Stop. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Balls. Well, howdy doody. Here we are in the Shoreditch studio of Alexa Stop, ready to record an episode for you. It's a Friday evening in May. There could be some noise from the street, but we're all about the noise from the street, aren't we, Rob? We don't like clean recordings. We like a little bit of siren in our mix for Alexa Stop. Of course, I am sat opposite that man, Mr. Robert Belgrave. And Rob, who am I? Hello, Jim. Mr. Jim Bose, as Jim has mentioned, we're coming to you live from our Shoreditch studio on Bank Holiday Weekend. What a week it's been. It's been the European elections, probably the most pointless elections ever if we're actually ever going to do Brexit. But, you know, probably don't want to dwell on the world of politics this week. Theresa was on her way out today. Exciting times. Yeah, I mean, the highlight for me was the footage that emerged on social media of the security guard opening the door to number 10 to remove the cat that was just chilling on the step. I don't know if you saw that. I didn't see it, but that looked good. I mean, I guess now we're going to have a Conservative Party leadership campaign. Oh, it's going to be just all turgid news for weeks on end. And probably bloody Boris is going to get the job. Disastrous. <sighs> Should we talk about some slightly more inspiring news than the, the state of our country? Let's do that. Because now it's time for the news. It's time for the news. It's time for the news. Yes, it's the news. It's the news. It's the news. Yes, it's the news. What's the first story, Rob? So this episode is a bit of a transport theme, as we've mentioned in our intro to the intro. Ah, yes. And we thought we'd start with a transport story. Fresh today, Uber have launched the Jump Bike Programme in London. I understand you rode one earlier today, Jim. I am known as an early adopter of new technologies and absolutely sure that they were launching it today i thought i'm gonna have a go on it right away actually what happened was had a meeting this morning walked to the meeting wanted to get back to the office quicker saw a jump bike they looked incredibly fresh all in a pristine row all fully charged and i jumped right on 
Fantastic. So for those of you that haven't bumped into a jump bike yet, it's a scheme that's been growing pretty aggressively in the States. You might have heard us ranting about them on our last episode, along with the electric scooters that we had great fun on in Austin. Jim was more partial to the bikes. I'm more of a scooter man. Take, take from that what you will. But the bikes have arrived in London. You'll start to see them around the place and they're fantastic. You walk up to them, you get your phone out, whip out the Uber app. I feel like I'm advertising for Uber. They should be paying us for this. You anyway, can use the Lime app as well. You there can. Are competitors. There are others. You scan the bike, jump on and you get billed for the ride at the end. And because they've got an electric motor attached to them it's very very low effort so unlike kind of crank your way around on a boris bike you arrive at your destination in relative calm without having broken a sweat and because they were fresh they were like eager like when i stopped at a traffic lights it was trying to like still force <laughs> like me forward raring to go yeah so be careful and uh you mentioned that it cost you about two pound to- 220 it was to go not very far so clark and well back to shoreditch high street is mm. more expensive than the bus ride and i was on a bus route so i could have got the 55 bus for less mm, that's not great which so i do think maybe they need to because it's effectively turning it into a premium experience there are however with lime opportunities to earn money so they have this role of the juicer which is people that charge the lime bikes oh really so you can go around charging up lime bikes with and- your car I don't know exactly how you're meant to do it. Are you meant to like take it into your house? I don't, I don't know. Or? Yeah, okay. But they'll, they pay you, do they, for charging them up? That's, they're that's called Lime and they call those people juicers. I think that's a nice bit of copywriting. Uh, so I just sort of enjoyed that from a sort of advertising strategy kind of sense. Look out for those bikes coming soon to a street corner near you as they litter the pavements. But anyway, from the roads to space. What's our second news story, Jim? Well, it's all about Mr. Elon Musk's SpaceX firing rockets full of satellites into space creating more of that space junk that those other scientists we talked about before are going to have to harpoon out of the sky at some point in the future yes indeed so spacex have delivered on their promise to launch the starlink broadband satellite fleet oh it makes me feel so good we are living in the future they have launched 60 small satellites each of which will participate in a mesh network to deliver high-speed internet access from space to areas of the world where it is currently challenging to receive broadband connectivity. Weren't Google sorting this out with Google Loon? Isn't everyone just trying to give internet to everyone? It does seem like there's three or four businesses doing this and what a lot of people don't realise this podcast, as you know, is all about how technology is changing our lives. Well, there's still about 40% of the planet doesn't have internet connectivity. And I don't just mean broadband. They have no internet connectivity at all. So this is going to impact billions of people if they go pull this off. That is a lot of memes that people can still check out. Imagine when people see Grumpy Cat for the first time. Can you imagine having never seen a meme? I know, exactly. That's, you know, I mean, maybe people have like seen other people's internet at some point, but there were still quite a lot of people that haven't seen grumpy cat um, also good quote from mr elon musk on this one that you particularly liked classic elon quote here shareholders i'm sure were delighted with this one uh, during a press briefing last week he said that it was one of the hardest engineering projects he's ever done but he felt he'd be executed well however also offering a moment of pause for caution as he said there's a lot of new technology in play here and it's possible that some of these satellites may not work you think okay and then he goes on to say actually there's a small possibility none of the satellites will work Cheers, Elon. Cheers, Elon. Thanks for firing them into space, not knowing if they'll work. Anyway, fantastic news. The Starlink Broadband Network coming soon. Are you a big fan? If there was technology that you wanted to bring back, would Robocop be one of those pieces of technology? Because there's a story we've spotted that kind of brings Robocop to life. Yeah, so from the streets of London to space and now back again to the transport theme on our roads, there is a robo-traffic stop thing that we've discovered. 
It's yeah, an interesting story. So it's basically like an attachment to the side of a police vehicle that when someone gets pulled over, drives alongside the driver's side of the car. And as the person winds the window down, is a sort of video conference back to the police car. You were sort of saying when we talked about this, Rob, you think there is some use in this because it potentially stops lots of people from getting shot. Yeah, so traffic stops in countries with more relaxed gun laws than our own in the UK you know, this is a big problem, right? Like in America, if you get traffic stopped, there's always this slightly kind of nervous exchange as the officer approaches the window. If you flinch or reach for something, they might think you're going for a gun. And and actually, you know, with good reason, it's something that does happen a lot is that criminals or people with bad intent will wait for the officer to kind of come up alongside and then whip out a gun and sort of shoot them out the window and drive off. So it's, this is using technology for good. This is changing the world to be better. And the thing I found on a slightly lighter note, absolutely amazing about this, is that they decided to give this little robot video screen thing a little police hat. Yeah, it does have that. I wonder if that will stay in the production version. A couple of other things about it is it will scan your driver's license yeah. and look you up automatically, and it will also print your ticket. Yeah, so the, so the police officer really doesn't have to get out of the car for any reason at all. They can issue you with your fine straight from the comfort of their seat. So this next story is a fascinating one to me because as companies all around us use data more to drive their products and services the natural desire to cheat those systems grows inside us as humans that sort of natural sense of fun and gamingness and this is a great story about that the quantified self-movement as we know obsesses about measuring all manner of things that we do in some cases just for our own benefit in others for sharing on social media and boasting about our activities uh, i'm sure we've all got a friend who loves to share their strava rides aggressively with us But also, it's becoming quite meaningful in the context of things like insurance premiums, as as certain policies are are being offered now, where if you agree to submit information about your activity levels, you get a lower premium if you're healthy and a higher one if you're not, and so forth. And so, the Chinese engineers have a solution for everything when it comes to consumer electronics, and they've come up with this little cradle that you can pop your smartphone in on your desk, and it sort of oscillates backwards and forwards, rocking it a little bit like a cradle for a baby, in a way that convinces the phone that it is taking steps. <laughs> I have got a new idea for a startup. Okay. It is a fraud detection system that spots patterns of step rhythm that can be recreated by this cradle. It only submits the actual data, doesn't it? Because that pattern would be spotable if the regularity of the step increase was demonstrable to the insurer. Yeah. If they're just taking the totals once an hour, they'd have no idea. Right, and I think you're relying on the phones themselves and their judgment on what makes up a step, right? So, yeah. that, so I, I suspect it probably works. Anyway, if you are planning on taking out a life insurance premium that involves a step count, you may want to invest in a Chinese walk-cheating cradle. You could. And I guess if you've got car insurance in this country, you may want to just tear out that black box inside your car and find ways to game that too. And on the subject of tearing things out and wrecking technology... Maybe it's time for a CTO story. Well, this is kind of a little bit a a stag special because, believe it or not, Rob and I were in Barcelona a couple of weeks ago on his stag do. Yep, very nice it was too. And it was really civilised, wasn't it, Rob? I kind of got away with it, I think. Totally. (laughs) You totally got away with it. And I think you've just got nicer friends. I was the least nice friend on the trip because I wanted to see some level of suffering. Jim was, at times, I think, 
actually a little bit angry with how nice a time I was having. It was all delightful. Like the, the worst thing that happened was you got slightly burnt knees and have probably got a bit of a like weird tan line. Like that's, <laughs> that's really the sum total of your suffering from yeah, that trip. That was, yeah, falling asleep in the sun on the roof of Barcelona Harbour and waking up burnt to a crisp probably was genuinely the worst thing I endured. So I'll take it. I'm right with that. But, you know, wedding soon. Yes, indeed. But we're not here to talk about our wedding. Come on, it's CTO story time. It is CTO story time. But, you know, we're just going to dwell a moment, a little bit, because I guess we might find some sort of CTO story in Provence when we're there. Maybe we'll record Alexa Stop at your wedding on your actual wedding day. I doubt that very much. Okay. Let's move on to your CTO story, but it is stag related. My CTO was on a stag do. Not my stag do. I hasten to add very recently. (laughs) Hasten to add. I I did not have him there. Because you wouldn't want this behaviour, would you? No, I wouldn't. This is exactly the reason why he was not invited. I love him dearly. So he went on a stag do in the UK. And one of the things that they did was one of these sort of group activities where they went to these sort of puzzle and escape room type places. Have you ever done it yourself? An escape room? No, I haven't. But we are taking the whole business to do one soon, actually. And I've never done it He'll probably ruin that as well. So anyway, in they all went, the group to this experience that was, you know, could easily have taken them an hour. And being the diligent problem solver that he is, not only did he get them out of their quick time, he actually did it in a quite significantly new record time. <laughs> and his, uh, his name now adorns the wall of the escape room experience. I mean, in some ways, that's an achievement, right? But in some ways, everybody's just spent 30, 40 quid or something to do something for whatever it was, like less than five minutes. And then I'm sure they're like, all right, chaps, off you go. Well done. You got out of the escape room. And everyone else is like still like doing up their shoelaces. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm probably being a little bit unfair here, but I, I have this mental image of them like walking in and pretty much just turning around and walking out again. So uh, he like slides some sort of magnet on the door on his way in. And he's like, it's all right. We can walk straight back out. He's like, oh, I've looked into it online. They're actually using Raspberry Pis to control the doors. So I brought my pre-hacked USB key. I'm just going to pop that in over there and Bob's your uncle. Click. <laughs> door opens up. Sort of takes the fun out of it for everyone else, doesn't it? But... I think it does. What's the moral of the story? CTOs are great friends, but maybe don't do escape room experiences with them. It's like the car wash all over again, isn't it? But less positive. Yeah. Free car washes for everybody. Have you got some uh, thing from the hype curve you'd like to talk about? Two things from the hype curve this month, Jim. From the hype curve, from the hype curve, from the hype curve. Very musical. Very nice. Our first story from the hype curve is an AI story. We always like to talk about about AI as it's clearly the most hyped thing on the hype curve at the moment. It remains highly hyped. It's also sort of crossing over into that mainstream, isn't it? Where like sort of loosely starts getting included in slightly mainstream adverts and things like that. Yeah, for sure. So there was a big announcement this week from an AI research team based out of Russia on behalf of Samsung. And they released a paper which was all about generating sort of deep fake videos which is a a technique where you can create a false video that looks real it sounds like a band name (laughs) hey we're the deep fake videos i know what song they did too what was it tell your mona what i'm gonna do (laughs) work with samsung to put some ai into use why, why did I sing that song, Rob? I don't know. I'm cringing. Anyway, what the paper does is it uses something called a GAN, which is a generative adversarial network. What's that? 
a generative adversarial network. What's one of those? So actually, it's two of them. And what it is, is a pair of neural networks that sort of compete with each other. So that's the adversarial part, right? So you have one network that knows what something should look like, and then another one that generates the state. So in this case, you have one network that understands what the target video should look like, and then you have one that continuously tries to create the solution to that problem using the source material. So it's how all this deepfake stuff is happening. And one of the examples that's come out is they animated the Mona Lisa, and it's kind of terrifying to see. It's like a video of the Mona Lisa turning her head, talking, incredible stuff right and and lots of people have seen some of the trump obama mashup stuff that's been circulating online there was a joe rogan one that came out a couple of weeks ago as well but what's so meaningful about this paper is it does it from a single 2d image all of the previous stuff required quite extensive video footage of the source and the destination yes but i suppose what we're talking about here is uh, that actual thing we've seen plenty of times before so the mona lisa has been animated many times probably in most cases painfully manually by an animation team exactly deciding what to do about it and crafting every image and then you've got versions which maybe have come from source material which is more varied but this is literally from an image of the mona lisa i mean it seems pretty clear that in the not too distant future as in the next year with pretty basic consumer hardware, I could take a single photo of Jim's face hello, and place it on any desired destination material. You can fill in the blanks for yourselves, listeners. We could have Jim doing well, whatever we like. Sounds good to me. I mean, I like to do a lot of different stuff. So if the possibilities are endless, then it just makes me more me. It's not fake at all <laughs> in my world. Like That's just more of Jimbo's Jimbozing. <laughs> Did you see that episode of uh, First Dates recently where the guy said, geezer's going to geese? <laughs> what, what a classic line that is. I wish I, wish I had. Yeah? I'm going to go hunt it down. Geezer's going to geese. Let's move it on. So the other hype curve story, which we really like to cover, is in the field of AR. So this is augmented reality and, and particularly in the field of AR gaming. It's a Minecraft story. So look, there's a new thing called Minecraft Earth, which basically brings Minecraft into the real world, augmenting our realities with Minecraft, a bit like Pokemon Go, I suppose, but in that sort of more Minecraft game sphere. Rob, have you ever played Minecraft? No. Jim, have you ever played Minecraft? No. (laughs) Great. Do you know anything about Minecraft? You build stuff, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I know a bit about Minecraft. There are like things called creepers that try and kill you and different types of block and you can build all kinds of cool stuff. But anyway, what the Minecraft team, and Minecraft's part of Microsoft these days, for those that don't know, it was required a couple of years ago, they've developed this whole new proposition called Minecraft Earth, as Jim says, and they're going to allow people to collaboratively build stuff and sort of participate in the Minecraft game in the real world around them. So combining that sort of space element like pokemon go did so successfully putting sort of artifacts in the real world around us that whole kind of discoverability thing so there's kind of a treasure hunt angle to it as well and i think it could be quite interesting and could potentially be very popular so uh, keen to see what happens when that launches if you could put any augmented reality game into your sort of real world what would it be Frogger would be quite fun for trying to cross the road in london yeah that would be good <laughs> that would be good it? right but i suppose you'd want it to have like live data of traffic 
And I would love to get a score for how good I am at crossing the road. I'm, I'm pretty ninja when it comes to crossing a busy road. I'm just thinking that I normally get blatted by about the fourth log. <laughs> so, uh, like, I think I'd be dead within a week, like tops. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure gamifying risky road crossings is the way forward. But, you know, you asked. That's I'm, what I'd go for. I mean, I naturally do it a little bit. But I think it would be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah, I can see how that would work. Should we move on? Yeah, I think we should. And so, as always, it's time to talk about some technology we would like to bring back. We've got a couple this week. We do. Where should we start? And it looks like you had a major laser this week. To see what I did there. I, I, yeah, very good. Yes. Yesterday, I was hosting, sort of comparing the annual conference that my business Wirehive runs in partnership with Kyan, an agency from Guildford called WXG. And it's a one-day tech conference that happens in Guildford. And this year's theme was Tech for Good. And it was a great day. We had a really nice, diverse range of speakers. And, and it was pretty hard-hitting stuff in some cases. So we decided to end the day with a kind of creativity angle, right, about how technology can do amazing good by just letting people have fun and be artistic and creative. And we had this guy called Seb, who's a famous laser artist, which is a pretty cool job title. He did the first digital fireworks display in the UK. He's done all kinds of crazy projection mapping stuff. And he just absolutely loves lasers. He had a t-shirt that said pew, 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 pew on it to give you an idea of how much the man loved his lasers. I have a Christmas jumper that says that on it strong he'd have liked that very much i'm sure he does too so what he did was kind of showed us all with his 12 megawatt laser what you can do and he has this bespoke software he'd built to do like kind of the control of these lasers and make them do cool stuff and kind of create these fantastic light shows and then just when we were all thought we you know were impressed as we were going to be he whipped out the retro games he had remade using his laser say what Absolutely. So he started off with Asteroids, which uh, for those of you that will remember Asteroids is a fantastic little game. And he had an old joystick with him. Exactly. That is exactly the noise. And he had the sound effects all on there as well. So you could play Asteroids using a little retro joystick with these lasers. And that was pretty cool. And then he wheeled out a remake of the Flappy Birds game, which was the mobile game where you have, you know, again, for those that don't remember it, there's a little bird kind of goes up and down. And there's basically one input for this which makes the bird go up when you tap the button. And then when you don't press anything, the bird would sort of float down and you have to maneuver your way through this course. But what Seb had done is he'd rigged it up to a noise meter based on crowd noise. So to get the bird to go up, everybody in the audience all had to clap and make noise. And then to have the bird float down again, everybody needed to be quiet. And I must say, I was quite impressed. The audience of WXG collaboratively made it through seven obstacles, which is quite good. Yeah, seven points is a pretty good uh, score. I wonder what could come next. So what was the, there was that Daily Thompson game where you, where he did like the, the running, where you had to sort of tap the keys left and right, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe something like that. So tech I'd like to bring back, retro games, but let's implement them with lasers. Why not? And there's one more thing in tech I'd like to bring back. You know when you go somewhere and there's a vending machine with chocolate in it? Yeah. Well, recently, over the last few years, they've become much more reliable. They generally give you the chocolate that they're meant to give you. you actually get the thing. You actually get the thing. Whereas it used to be more of a lottery when I was a kid. Sure. And I kind of want to bring back the unreliable vending machine. And that's because on your stag do, when I had no headphones for the flight home, I purchased some headphones in an electronics vending machine and I was given two for the price of one. Yes, you were. After some deliberation, Jim decided to purchase the cheapest headphones in the machine, you know, which I thought was was frugal and and a pragmatic decision. Unfortunately, had he purchased the Bose QC2s for 300 euros and got two pairs, he would have been considerably happier. So there you go. And I immediately gave one of them away to your best man. So, you know, I reckon probably wouldn't have given two away of the other one. So I feel like I still won. 
a nice place to end. So the tech you would bring back is dodgy vending machines. Dodgy vending machines is the tech I'd bring back. Yes. Fantastic. Do you think we should do something about resetting the studio and bringing our guest in? I think we should. It's time to interview the amazing Will Butler Adams all about the fantastic work he's doing as the CEO of Brompton Bicycles. And we're going to need to teleport and actually go to the Brompton factory. And here we are, Jim, for our interview this month, coming to you live from Brompton HQ with Will Butler-Adams. Hi, Will. Good morning. Welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. So this is unusual in a few ways for us. Firstly, we're on site, we're out of the studio, and also it is the morning. So the normal setup for this is that we do it in the evening and then we take someone for dinner. Sadly today... Oh, right. I'm missing out. <laughs> this is bad news. No dinner for you. But we did, however, also do something a little bit unusual, which we just nipped out for a quick bike ride. You know, incredibly exciting. We're trying out new Brompton electric bikes, which are sort of currently launching across Europe. It's fair to say I am not a keen cyclist um, because it kind of hurts my knees a bit. Producer Mark, producer of the show, very keen cyclist, has owned three Bromptons, very keen. But I loved our cycle round the block. I could be a convert by the end of this programme. I think the quote was, oh, I could just do one of these. That is the aim of the game because we have a weird world where pretty much all of us had our parents running behind us, desperately feeling like they weren't a terrible parent, teaching us how to ride a bike. And then somehow that fizzled out when we were about 16. So in London, for example, 4% of people are cyclists, but 99% of us know how to ride a bike. And yet we're sort of somehow weirdly paying money to go under the ground and sit in a little metal tube rather than whizzing about on the top. And yeah. we're trying to change that. Which often takes longer. And so we're all assuming that our listeners know exactly what Brompton is. Maybe we should... Fill that in for people. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we start there. Will, how would you describe Brompton? Well, basically, it's urban pocket freedom is what we're trying to deliver. Certainly for me, I just have a blast. You know, I I love exploring just not just London. I've been to cities all over the world. The first thing you do when you get a, a bike is get lost. You don't mind just taking some random route looks about the right way and you discover some street or you start a canal or you discover something interesting. And it just makes living in a city a little bit more enjoyable and we all need a bit of that and the story of Brompton's a fascinating one isn't it because it's got that sort of wonderful sort of struggle at the start yes, of it yes. so we're here in the sort of museum and next to the timeline of the business and um, right at the start there's some rejection letters from oh, yeah. Rally and from Barclays and maybe tell us a little bit about that story and also how you come into it so really the reason we have the bike is because of Andrew Ritchie who was the inventor and he came up with the idea because he wanted one I mean, it was as simple as that. And the best inventions are because people decide they need something and they go off and invent it. And that's what Andrew did. Obviously, he knew it was flipping amazing. And it was a masterpiece. He had no intention of ever making it. He decided it was so brilliant that everyone else was going to just throw money at him or sort of pay him amazing royalties and take it off his hands. As it turns out, they just simply were not interested. No one was interested. They all thought it was completely weird and that really he wasn't the right guy to do it. Most normal people at that point would have said they'd can it. But Andrew stuck at it for 13 years of knockbacks and he carried on doggedly because he believed in it. And finally, it was one of his customers, a chap called Julian Vereker, quite a cool guy, actually. He founded Name Audio, if you're into audio systems. And he was a customer of the ones that Andrew made himself with one other guy called Paddy under a railway arch. 
And then Andrew stopped making for six years. And he said, this is ridiculous. I'm going to put the money in. You've got to keep going with this bike. And that was in 1988. And we've sort of been at it ever since. And there's that sort of long period afterwards where sort of it grew steadily, but it feels like you're sort of coming into a really exciting phase or you've been in a, 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 an exciting phase of the business for a good few years now where you're sort of continually doing new things. So I was 27 when I accidentally bumped into Andrew's best friend on a bus. I was living in Middlesbrough. I thought I was going to INSEAD in France. Took this sort of slight weird detour to London, which was quite exciting and cool, but I thought I was going to do two years there. That was 17 years ago, and it's been a flipping riot. And we've made millions of mistakes. We've learned. We've flown by the seat of our pants. But somehow, looking back on it, we've grown about 15% a year for 17 years, and we've got bigger, and we're full of cool people doing cool things. I think that speaks largely to the quality of the product, right? Like, I think bicycles are by no means a new segment of the market of transportation but i think that what brompton has done is create something that is genuinely different has great market fit particularly for commuters and the kind Mm. of people it goes after and is just a product that creates real passion you know our producers here off mic today not because he necessarily needs to be but because he loves brompton and a chance to come to the factory was just too good a chance definitely need him here rob (laughs) it's very important that you know the edit will be much better it's you know that reaction i've always seen brompton create in people is amazing and i wonder I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Like, do you think that's been a big part of the success? But that's why I'm here. I wasn't planning to be here. I was planning to do my thing, get my work experience with something a bit weird, and then move on to the usual, do an MBA, and off you go. But the bike changed my life, you know? And there are so few products. We are just bombarded with monstrous amounts of detritus and over-exaggerated guff every time we open a magazine or go on the paper or open Twitter or whatever else it is, just telling us that we need to buy this stuff. And actually, most of the stuff we don't need to buy, and most of the stuff we buy, we find we never needed in the first place. So it's quite intoxicating when you discover something that, if anything, is underselling itself. And when you use it, you use it because you need it, but then you find you can use it for this and that, and and it makes you feel good, and it lasts like 15, 20 years, like how many things do that anymore so that's why people love it because it genuinely makes their life just a little bit better and there aren't too many things that do that so you talk about um how you you came here sort of for a bit of fun doing something weird for a little while can you remember the moment where that changed or was it a process that happened over a little while so it was when i started the opportunity was there was an inventor with what i thought was quite a cool product i didn't know it very well but he couldn't make enough so therefore there was opportunity. He was quite eccentric. His manufacturing operation, to my mind, was incredibly inefficient. So there was just a sort of an engineering job to be done. I moved to London. I never lived in London. I was brought up in Yorkshire, and then I'd been to Newcastle Uni, and then I was working in the borough. And I wasn't ordinarily an urban person. So I was slightly intimidated by just the size and the, the amount of sort of buildingness of London, which funny enough isn't the case, but that's what you think when you arrive. And this bike, you know, I was meeting my girlfriend, now wife, you know, we'd go to clubs, we'd rock up on our bike, we'd meet mates in the pub, I'd give her a croggy on the back for three miles, slightly tiddled. You know, I just had a laugh for this thing. I'd rock up to nightclubs where people had amazingly long nails and looked down at this scrubby little bike and asked me what that was, and then I'd managed to wingle it in there, and then I'd, you know, it was just fun. 
and London at night and the freedom you can go wherever and friends got one and then two of you and and of course I'm exaggerating because I'm obsessed by the flipping thing but generally and genuinely it had an impact on my life and that is what we're trying to achieve. It seems like you fell in love with it. Yes because it made my life better. I mean it's so simple and in fact all we have done or all I have done is try to find people who can help me continue to do that and evolve what Andrew created. Great design, which is what Andrew gave us, is very long-lasting. You look at a Porsche or you look at yeah, other... timeless, great, timeless. Yeah, and they evolve tremendously, but the fundamental design was incredible. And we have taken that and evolved it. We've used amazing technology that we have today, incredibly powerful 3D printing, we've got incredibly powerful computers that allow us to analyze. So when Andrew did it, he was doing it sort of plus or minus 0.1 decimal place based upon calculations that he did on a piece of paper. We are now using full FEA, we're using full powerful modeling. We can see in a way we couldn't see before. So we've been able to optimize so much of the bike, improve the stiffness, improve the strength, reduce the weight, and take it forward. Perhaps worth saying that you still make the bikes in the UK, have always yeah. made them in the UK. And why is that important to you? So in the early days, we couldn't make enough bikes. So quite frankly, where we made them and trying to shave off a pound here or a pound there didn't matter because we couldn't make enough anyway. To meet um, the demand, you mean? Yeah. But then increasingly, we organized ourselves better and we moved in here three years ago. So if you like, three years ago was the moment. If we were going to go somewhere, we could have done it. And of course, we did analysis. We spoke to our customers. We were trying to work out where we're going to go. And the customers sort of said they, they like the fact that it's British. A sufficient proportion that made us say in our sort of analytical mind, therefore we need to keep it in the UK. Well, there are lots of places in the UK could go that are hell of a lot cheaper than London. So, you know, that opened it up. And we looked at all that stuff. And the absolute cruts of it was, if we'd gone somewhere which was like economically sensible, where we'd have even been paid to go there, it would have been on some industrial site in the arse end of nowhere that needed some employment. At which point, it would have been brilliant for the first couple of years. Our margins would have gone through the roof and have all been happy as Larry. But then we'd have discovered that our staff had absolutely no use for this product that they were making. You don't need a folding bike when you live just outside Merthyr Tydfil and, you know, you're on an industrial estate. You need a car, you need a mountain bike, a road bike, whatever, motorbike, but you don't need a folding bike. One of the reasons this thing's half decent is because so many of us use it and it annoys us because it's not good enough. I'm forever thinking this thing should be better. And so we're always dissatisfied because we use it a lot. So the fact that we're still making it in London by people who use it affects its design and evolution. And we're here, I guess, to talk a bit about some of that evolution, but it's good that you sort of pick up on, so you're still frustrated and there's still a, a sort of a, a hunger and anger to make it better. So what are the things that you still want to make better? Oh my God, I mean, it's riddled, <laughs> it's riddled in it. I mean, the product itself. I mean, don't be too hard on yourself, it's a great product. It is. We spent a good few minutes flying around. Oh yeah, but on it's, your not new bike. it's not good enough. It's not good enough. There are things we can improve on the ergonomics. We want to take weight out of it. We want to improve the intuitiveness of it. The way we make it, we can improve the way we train our staff. We can improve the way we communicate. One of the things we're not good at, we're a bunch of engineers, is communication. I'm not that keen on marketing because that infers guff and fakeness. But you know, there are people out there who would love this bike and it would be just what they need, but they've got no idea we even exist. Yeah. And, and we're slightly lulled into false sense of security in London because actually we're quite well known here, but the world is big, blue and round and there are lots of places where people could do with a decent folding bike and they just, what is that? They've never seen it. 
On that note, how is your traction overseas? I know that I think I think Germany is quite a strong market, and I believe possibly you've got some inroads in China. I seem to remember from talking. Yeah, to one yeah, of yeah. Team. I mean, I mean, you know, on the face of it, you know, we, we tick all the boxes. We export nearly eighty percent to forty-seven yeah. countries around the world, and it all sounds brilliant. But you know, the impact we've had on London, our mission as a business is to change how people live in cities. Is really where I started. Weirdly, in the last forty, fifty years have as a bunch of human beings pretty much around the globe without fail have all marched into urbanization no one asked us we didn't vote for it it sort of just happened unconsciously and then we just stuffed those urban places where we all live and bring up our families full of cars full of very expensive undergrounds that we turned out we couldn't afford and we gave up on something called a bicycle that was doing a perfectly good job in the 50s getting people around and instead we spent billions digging a big massive hole under the ground where the air is pretty crap and if you want to muck up your head do that for an hour and a half each way to work and you'll wonder why you're not feeling happy and so for us that doesn't make sense and we want to pull people back out of under the ground and we want to clear up the air because that's where most of us live and take back our cities and their lovely architecture and their parks and their all their other wonderful things that we've all forgotten about because we're on such a mission to get from a to b and then sit there tapping on the screen so perhaps like let's take that question about about the future of urban transport and you know certainly rob and i were in south by southwest recently in austin where there are electric scooters everywhere that you could just pick up with an app and some bikes as well thinking about it which we'll we'll come to the electric brompton in a bit but go on and there are you know there's the there's the um, bike scheme in london and also competitors for that like ovo who've got these bikes that just get left everywhere um, which maybe hasn't gone quite as well in our society as it has in some of the sort of more uh, ordered asian societies and so i guess how do you see this changing and what do you think the next major changes will be in our in our cities including london but maybe other places as well so for me the main macro is for the first time in over a generation politicians have realized that what we've designed for our citizens is not working not particularly because of global warming, even though they might say that. In my opinion, the thing that's really hurting them is the cost of looking after these people, is health. So the burden on states due to this society we're creating is getting bad. And we just put 20 billion into the NHS for my dad's generation, who were post-war, had good food, had lots of exercise at school, and we just stuffed 20 billion in for them. Well, give it 20 years and we are up the creek without a paddle because if that lot are putting pressure on the NHS, the next lot coming down the track are far worse because they've lived a you know, sedentary lifestyle, urban, not moving around much, not eating the best food. So governments are realizing they have to nudge. And the greatest concentration of their citizens are in cities. So the place to nudge them, the most effective way to nudge them is in cities. So in the long term... There will be changes. Now, in the meantime, you will have the likes of us, very engineering-based, very long-term, privately owned, in it for the long run, trying to develop very cool products. Our electric, six-year development, two and a half million quid, big risk, but we believe in it. And then you'll have other opportunists, which in some respects you could put under the it's okay because they're a disruptor, but a little bit weird where they go and raise a billion quid from people who just want to make shed loads of cash. It's like the next unicorn, everyone's popping corks, and then four years later they've gone bust and all these eco-friendly bikes are clogging up rivers, canals, and there are just like mountains of them. But it's part of the weird world we live in and we'll just muddle through. But fundamentally, 
you know, I'm 44, hopefully I'll be around in 40 years' time. We cannot be living in cities the way they are today. That has to change. And all of this, in its weird, sort of funny old way, is contributing to that slightly imperfect journey. And we will be the tortoise because we are careful, considered in engineering, but we are in it for the long term and hope that we'll be there in 40 years delivering great products. We should maybe talk a bit about the product you mentioned in that journey. So you, yeah. we, we had a, a lot of fun uh, riding around near your factory on your electric bike, which uh, I believe you said gives you about 30% assistance. But it yeah. felt to me like I was pretty much flying. As we sat down to record, Will asked us if we'd been on the amazing new Brompton electric bike. And when we said no, he immediately demanded that we stood up from the studio and went for a quick lap around the business park on a couple of these new bikes. And I must say fantastic really really impressive and while we were riding we were being talked through the product in passionate detail as i'm sure you can imagine from listening to this interview so far what really struck me was how you'd had to build everything yourselves you know you you weren't willing to compromise and use other people's technology yes it'd be great to hear a bit about the journey with the product and how you hope to see it land in the market and so so forth and maybe just along the way the hardest thing to to develop in, in that journey so people always say we're a bit slow and i suppose they're right because we are a bit slow, you know, the electric wave has come, but we've been on this for about 10 years. And maybe that just reflects on the fact that we're useless at getting anything done, which may be a little bit true too, but we saw the opportunity. I mean, we knew it, we could see it, we live and breathe this world. And initially we tried to get somebody else to do it for us, because that's a sensible thing to do. You find somebody who's an expert, you ask them to make something for you. And, you know, the big guys, forget it. You know, our first order was 1,500 bikes. They just looked down their noses at us and laughed at us. And then we tried to find somebody, and we found this company that looked like they made some quite cool motors. So we ended up trotting out to China. I went there the first time, got quite excited, met them in their office. I was on a short trip there because we were trying to set up an office for sales. Then I shot back. Then Will, another Will, who's our head of design, he went out to see their factory because we're like, we need to see how you make these things. Anyway, turned out it was an old pig farm. This is not a joke. It's a genuine truth, honest story. It was a pig farm. There were guys smoking clay pipes like Dickens, like proper clay pipes, and they were hand-winding the motors. And it was like, we're out, we're out. Eject, eject. So it was like, oh, gosh. So we couldn't find the right partner. So then we are lucky. We have enthusiastic customers. And one of our customers is a chap called Patrick Head, who used to run Williams. In fact, he's recently been called back to help them out a bit, Williams F1. I've known Patrick for a long time, and I rang him up and said, Patrick, I need some help. You know people in this sphere. Can you help? And it turns out, naively from my perspective, I didn't know about the Curse system inside an F1 car, which is a kinetic energy recovery system. But for us, it's a system that has a battery, a controller, and a motor. Right. And Williams had developed that to quite a high level. And they went, yeah, bike, come on. I mean, easy. We can sort you out. Yeah. So, of course, we signed up with them with a bit of help from Patrick. And then, of course, it all turned out to be far harder than we thought. The bit that, that really was a tricky bit was the gears. So without getting too techy, um, to get an efficient motor, you need high revolution on your motor. But if you want to have a decent bike, you need high torque. So you've got to move high revs down to high torque. You need gears, big gear drop down. We've got little space. So we need stepped epicyclic gear train. And I can tell you, for four of the six years, it didn't work. It did not work. We tried this, we tried this, we tried this. It did not work. We cried, we stared at it, we kicked at it. And finally, we found some guys in the US who were making UAVs and using some very clever technology, both in design and in material. And we nicked that from that application and have stuffed it into our motor. 
So that was one of the key problems, but there were plenty of others. When you got that breakthrough, did you sort of feel like, right, we're off and away now? Or? It isn't as simple as that. That was that particular horizon. We got over it. It was one of the big hurdles. But, but then sure you just hit more. another and yeah. another and another. And, you know, and we're a metal basher historically, and we've had to become electronics and software experts and that's quite a big shift and you need to find brilliant people to help you and we've got some cool people and it's burnt fingers and you know all the other stuff but you know we have created something we're proud of but it's the beginning you know this is the very first thing we've created it took us a while and two years longer than we thought because we weren't happy with it we're now really happy with it but a bit like the bike you know, it's only going to get better because we've got all these other ideas and we now learn so much and that's normal and good. It seems like the product is quite user-centred or, or, or the, you're customer-centred in the sense that, you know, you've really thought about the bag and how people are going to go to meetings. And do you have a way of doing that? Do you, do you, do you speak to customers regularly? Do you have a panel or something that's involved? Or? So if we were organised, we would have a panel and it would all be very good. What we have is very, very enthusiastic customers. I might even say, and I adore my customers, Maybe even sometimes a little annoying. They're so enthusiastic. Fanatical, one yeah. might say. But I mean, I'm saying that in a really positive way. I mean, sure. and, I, and enough of my customers know me. I'm saying that slightly in jest. But so our customers are really great at telling us what they think and engaging with us. And also, you know, we are customers, so many of us, but also we travel around the world. Our dealers are customers. You know, so we have got tremendous insight coming from our customers and anything you do is your best effort but even now we've sold now two two and a half thousand of the electric bikes and we just want to suck up the feedback get as much insight and we've restricted supply so we we haven't just rolled it out tons of them we've gone slowly because there's a lot of new stuff in there it's unproven you know we haven't been selling it for 20 years so and there's a lot of pushing the limits of technology so we've been quite cautious and we're just listening and wanting to learn and hear and because then you can evolve that into how you develop the the bike and not be so arrogant to think that you know everything because you don't we're just a group of customers and we've got loads more out there who can give us insight and have you seen any differences between the markets that you're operating in? Because I know you're about to launch the electric bike in more European countries. And maybe things that you've learned with, with the, the, the classic bike. Andrew conceived this bike as a tool. He rents the same flat that he rented when he left Cambridge. When he used to come to the factory, he had a pair of Wellington boots that he pedaled over the Hammersmith flyover in the Wellington boots that probably cost him no more than five quid. The first big run-in he and I had was... We were trying to develop a super light bike and spend a lot of our savings on developing it. And we had some scales that came out of his kitchen that were red, small, about this big, and they had a sort of jiggly dial. And I spent 21 quid on a pair of electronic scales and he hit the roof because he thought it was a complete waste of money and why on earth did we need the electronic scales? And um, Andrew, it was an absolute purist where the thing is a tool. And unbeknown to us, because the bike People visited London, bought one, took it home, and then that's how we got our initial interest from abroad. And we started selling to Japan. And we seemed to get these fantastic sales in those early days. We were amazed by it. Anyway, I finally persuaded Amdu. We, we needed to go and see the customer because it was some years before. It's miles away, Japan, and they seemed to be getting along all right. And so we just left them to it. And when we went out there, Andrew was just devastated because to his absolute shock horror, they weren't using the bike the way it was designed. It was designed to be used covered in crap, bashed, smashed, bomb-proof tool. 
but they weren't using it like that at all. They polished it. They dangled little bears on it, little dollies. They had things dangling off the back of it. They didn't use it during the week because it's far too precious for that. They used it for a very short period of time, you know, at the weekend with their friends going on a lovely ride. And then they'd come to the end of the ride with their friends. And then they'd spend a good deal of time polishing it up. And Andrew couldn't get his head around that at all. And the interesting thing is, he designed a flexible solution for his needs. But the, one of the cool things about the Brompton, it, it is freedom. It is so flexible that you might think you're going to use it in one way, but it has all this other opportunity. And that's sort of what Asia did. It had been designed for this, but they interpreted it differently. And they love it. And it's fantastic. And they've gone from doing short rides to like massive rides all around Taiwan, epic journeys, like mega trips. And there are clubs and, you know, get togethers and massive rides. And it's just awesome, but not how we conceived it. Yeah, it's fascinating. And what struck me about that story was that if, from what I know of Japanese culture, when they find something they consider to be really exceptional from an engineering point of view, they often put it on a pedestal, right? And for them, it's not a hammer, it's a, it's a statue. It's, yes. it's this incredible thing. And like their car kind of culture is like that as well. So they obviously tapped into the beauty and elegance of the product and therefore treated it in that way with that sort of reverence that they do, right? But it's so different to Andrew's original vision. I, I would have loved to have seen his, seen his face on that day. It's a great story. Yeah, definitely. There's a couple of um, other things I, I definitely want to ask you about. One of them, you touched on this briefly. It's, it's a little bit of a departure, but I suppose it relates to the fact that if you'd have conceived a marketing campaign for your launch in Japan, that I guess could have focused on more the sort of British version of, of how the bike is at all. Yep. But the part of that I wanted to focus on is the fact that you sort of don't really agree with marketing or you don't like advertising because a lot of our audience work in advertising. Now, I'm not saying that they would disagree with you because lots of them will have worked on campaigns where they feel that they're just trying to sell more stuff to more people for no real reason. Ironically, some of the most cynical people when it comes to advertising and marketing. But sorry, Jim, carry on. No, no, are the people that work in it. But I'm interested to, to sort of expand on that point a little bit. You have to communicate, but it's a personal maybe gripe, but I just see just so much dross. I see so much fakeness. It clutters up my phone with stuff I'm not interested. It clutters up my magazine, paper. And, you know, and I'm reasonably careful, but still we, our family, I've got three children. We, we just buy still too much stuff and we don't need it. And, um, and I think so much of it is over-promised. It's like politicians. Everything's over-promised. There's no honesty anywhere. And, and then, of course, you know, you're told it's going to do amazing things for your life. And, of course, guess what? It, it just doesn't. And, and so that's not who we are. We are trying to make something that is useful. We even, when we first went to America, we, we explained to them who not to sell the Brompton to. And they thought that was the weirdest thing ever. But... You know, if you're very good at selling, you can sell something to anybody. Now, if you sell this product to somebody for whom it is not a product that they need, doesn't matter how good the product is, they'll never love it because they never needed it in the first place. So, you know, when there are so many people that do need it but don't know they need it, get on and sell it to them, but don't sell it to somebody for whom it is not required. And, and similarly with, with marketing, the best we can do with marketing, the very best thing we can do is make an awesome product. That is the best thing we can do because then our customers will do the marketing for us. And we are quite lucky that when I joined, what happened was social media came alive. And that has been a real uh, 
positive for us and positive the companies that are really focused on delivering something to the consumer that's, that's, that's honest and has integrity because then you don't need to do the bullshit. You can just let the customer do it for you. And the customer's so delighted when they get something that they like that they will tell people. And it's not just telling your friend or your neighbor. It's telling someone in Japan or in America or anywhere else. And that's, that's our fundamental philosophy. But maybe more recently as we're getting bigger, we do need to get better at communicating, not marketing. And, and I have to slightly eat a bit of humble pie because I've had to slightly change my team because I was so anti it. I've now sort of got to say, well, we are allowed to communicate, but we're not allowed to market, you know. But there is, in my mind, a big difference. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're a couple of years away from when I believe uh, the amount of fake news in the world will overtake the amount of real news. And so that's a time when brand and trust and heritage will actually become more important than ever, which is, is, you know, for you, a good thing yeah. because you've got a great story that fits with that it's that authenticity of message isn't it it's like it's i think it's okay to communicate but you've got to be authentic with with what you're saying and i think the other thing that stands out from from your view there is a lot of those products that are kind of rammed down our throats very marketing-led advertising-led mm. aren't built to last and this product is mm. and actually i think that just for me that changes the complexion of the purchase massively as well like how few products do you buy today even a car you buy today you don't expect to keep for 15 years most people you mm. know the, the new smartphone most people keep for a year right i mean it's insane how how much that's changed and especially and I, considering how many very precious metals are inside yeah, it yeah absolutely oh. um so you know the it, it gives me real joy to hear about the average length people own bromptons for how well they last you know and you can really see that in the factory that we, we went around earlier that 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 care that's being given to every component as it's being built by hand and put together is absolutely magic. But, but that doesn't mean that you're not prepared to do new things. Yes, and I was about to say, the amount of technology that's involved, you know, our assembly line is smart. We have a Raspberry Pi on every single station. We have 16 million variants. We have Bluetooth from the torque wrench to the Raspberry Pi, so we know the torque of every bolt, or the safety critical bolts anyway. You know, so there is, to me, it's about taking the best of the past and mixing it with the best of the latest technology. It's not about, right, we need to be high-tech. Everything must be high-tech. We braze, which is a very highly skilled manual job because it delivers the best outcome for our customer. We use Raspberry Pis. We've got this amazing gear system using materials that didn't even exist five years ago. And we're using some very, very clever inverter software technology, which we've licensed from Williams, which is right at the edge. So we will match the best we can to deliver the best product. Not, not, not because it sounds cool or it's trendy or it's the latest fad, but just because that we think at the moment is the best we can do. And we'll take whatever it requires to do that. And we don't care whether it's old, new or anything else. We'll just pull it together to get the best outcome we can. I guess tonight, part of your sort of slightly new direction is that you're opening a new store. Yep. And that's in Westfield, which perhaps people wouldn't classically associate with yep. a, a, somewhere where you'd choose to open. So you need to innovate. And people love talking about innovate. It's like entrepreneur. They chuck it in as fast as they can because it's a trendy word. But it is important innovation for me, innovation is about not following the crowd. There is just endless sameness everywhere. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's clothing, it's nine to five work. Every single thing you do in your business just has room for innovation. We work a nine-day fortnight, and I don't know many other companies who do that. We introduced about 10 years ago. So that we're quite a young company. People like to go out and do stuff at the weekend. So it means every other weekend's a long weekend. How cool is that? And 
you know, it's easy and we just we all work too many hours anyway. So why don't we do the too many hours in nine days rather than in 10? It's neither here nor there. And we're all on our flipping phones, so quite frankly, who cares? But coming back to retail, we are not a retailer. That is not our ambition and that's not our goal. But what we found was we're, we're selling through 1,500 shops, you know, Evans, C-Club, guys in Japan. And what we saw consistently was our industry, the bike shops, were selling to cyclists. That's what they were doing. Well, like I said earlier, London, cyclists, 4%. People who know how to ride a bike, 99 Well, unless you're a Muppet, don't focus on the four. You want to be focusing on the 95 and explaining to them that what on earth are you doing when you know how to ride a bike, paying money to go under the ground, you know, where the air sucks and you're stuffed into a little metal hole where every, no one even wants to look at you. So... We are using our shops to challenge our industry and to say to them, guys, we are going to show you stuff. We're going to try stuff differently. And if it goes wrong, we'll tell you, don't do this because we tried it and it failed. But if it goes well, you should learn from us and implement some of this into your store, into how you're selling. But we really want to get our industry to talk more broadly. I mean, similar little mad innovation, talking about innovation. One of the ways in which we market, if you like, is we bring our dealers in to London. So we bring in about 200, 250 people from around the world to our factory to spend a couple of days and really understand what we stand for. Not just in the factory, but we hang out in London, go riding, visit stores, and it's the best way we can communicate what we stand for. This year, about 250. Out of the 250, five women. Five women from 250 people from our stores. Now, unless I'm very, very mistaken, the target market are urbanites who can ride a bike. Well, we've established 99% of them more or less can ride a bike. Well, the other weird statistic is half of them happen to be women. And yet our industry is all men. Yeah. So, you know, guess what? In our stores, we employ women. How radical is that? You know, and guess what? The percentage of sales to women is much higher than any other average store that we have in the world. So sometimes innovation isn't so rad. It's under your nose. And I mean, it's a topic we're very familiar with because we both run technology businesses. So we have the gender balance is, is, is poor in lots of those businesses. And it's a, a topic that we've been talking about a lot. And actually, um, the Beamer Diversity and Inclusion report was uh, released last week, I yeah, think. So it's hopefully something that we'll, 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 if enough people, enough voices come together on, there'll be some changes. And so another thing that's always struck me about the Rompton product is how incredibly sort of personalized they are. I don't think I've ever seen two that look the same. And, you know, you guys have obviously been very supportive of that, different saddle colors, different grips, all the kind of little bells and whistles, and not just for the Japanese market either. Talk to us a bit about that. Is that something that was deliberate? Was that customer-led? How did that all come about? It's interesting, and it comes a bit back to the story where initially it wasn't quite Model T Ford, but you could have a Brompton in red and black. That was it. Then you could have it in all black, and then you could have it in all blue. Then you have ambitious race green. But what became clear is we as consumers are all different. And we wear clothes for a reason. One, they keep us warm, but also they say something about who we are. And that's terribly important. Personally, not that important to me. As you can see, no one else can see. I can't give a stuff what I wear. Mine things really are just there to keep me warm until they wear out. But that's a bit weird. Most people care quite a lot. So we had to find ways to capture the connection between our bike 
and the consumer, whoever that consumer might be. And a way of doing that is allowing them to personalize the bike so that it fits their character. Now, my challenge to that is, if in three years' time, you then said to them, sorry, you can't have your pink and green Brompton anymore. The only one I can give you is a rusty brown one. They wouldn't give a stuff because they love it so much and it's changed their life. But that isn't where they are at the beginning of the journey. So we've got to find ways. It's a bit like, how do we engage with the 95% and get them back into cycling? And we've got to find ways to do that. Stories. We did a great collaboration with David Miller, who's an ex-pro cyclist, because we have a whole community of cyclists who cycle at the weekend, but then during the week, they're in the tube, they're on the Uber or on a cab. And you're like, well, that's nuts. Because you, you even are cycling loads, but yet you don't do it during the week. And, and David was awesome because he said, I know how to communicate to my type of customer. We developed a very stripped down, very edgy bike, and it's gone fantastically well getting that consumer base onto a bike during the week. So it's trying to find ways to engage with different communities. And, uh, and one of the other ways that you're you're doing that is, and, and I guess maybe this is a slightly more general point, um, you've got a bike hire scheme. That, yep. um, it'd be interesting to know how that came about and and also what you see doing with that in the future and whether there's sort of any other sort of sharing economy ideas that you're pursuing. Again, I mean, these things are all so sort of similar and linked, but how they manifest themselves changes. One thing we know about our bike is it looks a bit weird. I mean, when I first started riding it, I was a bit of a freak. Six foot four, long legs, whizzing along on this thing with tiny little wheels. My mates wonder what the hell I was doing. Then it normalizes itself. And in London, the weird has become the normal. But that isn't normal in the rest of the world. It's still a bit weird. And even for a lot of the 95%, it's still weird. Also, it's not cheap. You're going to be spending 800 pounds on something that looks weird. It's not like a Ferrari. It doesn't tell you what it is. It's, if anything, it's counterintuitive. So... We needed to find ways to break down the barriers, and one of the barriers is cost. But we know when people use it, not, not just like what we did, a little round in the car park. If you took it home for three or four days and really used it in your life, then you get it. Then the penny dropped. This is flipping awesome. But how do you do that? So allowing people to take a bike, and we're completely different to any other hire scheme in the world. We're more like bike lease. The average hire is four and a half days. So you go to one of our docks, we're not a city scheme, we're a national scheme, we're in 20 cities, we've got 50 locations. You can pick up a a Bromi for £3.50 a day, and then you just pick it up, take it home, and just hang out with it for a couple of weeks. You might be going to Paris, jump on the, you know, on the the Eurostar, or you, you might be going on a grand tour, or you might just try commuting with it. And then you find out, and and the barrier is low, and you can see if you like it and go from there. And perhaps bringing it back around to sort of where we started, which was your journey into Brompton, you came to work here because of a chance conversation on a coach journey. Mm. Is there anyone else that you have brought into the organization in a similar way? I'm a great one for odd things. The way they've come about, don't let that stop you going for it. So one of our directors wrote me a letter. Um, Well, obviously, he wasn't a director at the time. He was just a customer. He wrote me this lovely letter saying, you need my help. I've got to wait 14 weeks for your bike. That's a joke. How can it be that I have to wait 14 weeks for a bike? I've been in the manufacturing industry. I thought that is the coolest letter I've read. He became one of our directors. Still is John Putt, legend. If I meet people, I love to just say, yeah, why not? Come on. You know, give it a go and to try stuff. So the, the business is full of serendipity 
and chance opportunity because there are opportunities passing by all of us all the time. It's not, oh, you've been lucky because you've seen them. It's whether you grab them or not. They're all there. It's just whether you reach out and grab them. So if we see the smell, the slightest chance of an opportunity, we'll try and grab it. Amazing. That's probably a good place to wrap things up. Uh, I'm ending in West London in an amazing factory of incredible British-built, British-designed products with a very large smile on my face. Thank you so much, Will. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. (sighs) What an amazing guy. Yeah, really enjoyed that. And the bikes are so much better than I expected. I didn't want to have to have like an embarrassing bit at the end where I'm like, oh, they made us go on the bikes and uh, they're not as good. But actually, now it made me want one. I think that was definitely the most enjoyable interviewing experience I've ever had to be uh, thrust onto an electric bicycle, do a couple of turns around the grounds with the passion and charisma that Will has for the product. It was it was awesome. Thank you so much for listening to Alexa Stop and making it all the way to the end. Rob and I are delighted that you got this far. Keep in touch with us at Alexa underscore stop on Twitter or us personally at Jimbo's or at Robert Belgrave. We'll be back next month and we can't wait to see you then.